Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 20, The Coup of 18 Brumaire. Well, folks, we finally made it. We've made it to the climactic end, not only to Napoleon's rise to absolute power in France, but also the generally accepted end to the French Revolution. From his humble beginnings in Corsica, to his rise to prominence following the siege of Toulon, to him being placed firmly on the European military map with his conquests of Italy and Egypt, we've been building for this moment. Nearly 200 days and 20 total episodes since our first episode, The Island Boy, dropped. We have arrived at the 18th century's final great singular event, the coup of 18 Brumaire. But before we dive headlong into all the events leading up to and during 18 Brumaire, as well as the more important and action-packed 19 Brumaire, first, a little plug. In an effort to further my outreach, I am now on Twitter as at Historian. so... If you like the podcast or you would like some suggestions for previous and future episodes, you now have a way to contact me. And yes, we are still working on our website. I do apologize for the delay there, but our site builder has been a little slower than I had anticipated. So I appreciate everyone's patience there. But as soon as we have it done, I promise I'll send out a special episode announcing its launch so that we can also have that avenue of communication as well. And for those interested, my Patreon link, is also listed in my Twitter bio if you'd like to help us out here at the Titans of History podcast. Again, my intention is to keep this podcast free for all as long as I'm physically able to continue doing so, but every little bit helps with producing resource material, production equipment, and hey, if you want episodes out even quicker than the average 10 days it takes me to put them out, anything you can send is greatly appreciated. But as always, thank you, thank you, thank you all for your continued support. And with that, on to the show. Because the events of 18 Brumaire are many and scattered, I wanted to divvy up this episode into three main parts. Part one is going to focus on the buildup and context leading up to Brumaire, some of which we touched on last week, but others that I think will need a little bit more detail. Part two is going to focus on the main players involved in the coup, a few of which we've spoken about at varying lengths, others we need to introduce, And I'm going to give a quick summary intro on them because they are going to be very important to the events in today's episode, as well as the following ones. And then lastly, will be part three, which will consist of the events of the coup itself, its aftermath, and what lays ahead for the upcoming episodes and the consulate. Okay, so before we wrap up the 18th century, let's take a quick look at where France stood as Napoleon returned from Egypt in early October of 1799. To understand the coup of 18 Brumaire, we actually need to take a look at another coup first, and that is the coup of 30 Prairial, year 7, better known as the Revenge of the Consuls. We've mentioned numerous times now that the directory was about as popular as a cork bottle of fine wine, and the events of 1798 to 1799 further added to their disdain amongst the French population. 
Bad harvests in the late 1790s led to grain hoarding, creating surging prices for bread and wheat, and adding to hyperinflation, which was still a lingering effect from the previous regime. Uprisings of the Vendée were beginning to simmer back up again. French defeats at the hands of the Second Coalition at the start of the resumption of hostilities led to near-universal military conscription, quickly fueling enmity among the already war-weary French public. Now, this enmity was further exacerbated when much of the territory that Napoleon had personally conquered in Italy was reconquered by the Allies. Now, these and the defeats on the battlefield in early 1799 led to pro-war neo-Jacobins winning 315 seats in both the legislative councils, creating a Jacobin majority, particularly in the lower house or the Council of 500. Now, the Jacobins were unhappy with the director's conduct of running the war generally and their removal of former General Jean-Étienne Champagnier specifically, who also had Jacobin leanings. And so as a result, both councils voted on an act declaring that the election of director Jean-Baptiste Treillard had been illegal, and on June 17th, 29 Prairie All in your revolutionary calendar, they replaced him with former Jacobin deputy Louise Goyer. Now the thought of another Jacobin regime running the French government spooked a lot of people, not the least of which were the main directors themselves who, fearing a return to the violence of the reign of terror, began to think out loud about some uh, purges. But their popularity was such that even anti-Jacobins, like one of the newly appointed directors, Emmanuel Joseph Sies, were actually okay working with Jacobins to see some of these other incompetent, dull directors removed from office and then replaced with men who at least had a pretense of ability. Plus, CAs, as we'll see in a minute, was basically planning this coup for years, and this seemed like a perfect time to kill the directory from within. So, with his support, as well as that of veteran director Nofrem Paul Barat, the Councils of Ancients and 500 demanded that the two remaining directors resign in favor of new ones appointed by the Jacobin Councils the following day, June 18th, or 30 Prairie All, Year 7. Now, when they refused, General Jobert, commanding the 17th Military Unit, that is, the Military Unit of Paris, uh, moved some troops around, if you catch my drift. The other two directors got the hint, and they would resign by the end of the evening. Funny how that stuff plays out sometimes, isn't it? Now, the coup of 30 Prairie All isn't exactly the headliner when we talk about the litany of coups and counter-coups that define the French Revolution. In fact, by definition, it wasn't really even a coup, as most of the motions had been technically legal. But what 30 Prairie All did do was bring CAs to the stage as the dominant political figure in the directory, even replacing the presence of Barat, and he began to set his eyes on something bigger than just being one of the five executives of France. He wanted to be, in theory, the only executive of France. Now, we'll give a formal introduction into the man known to history as the Abbé in a minute. So let's finish up with the lead-up to November, and then we'll get into all the actors who helped put Napoleon in charge of France, whether they intended to or not. After Prairie All, France's situation actually improved. As you mentioned last week, the British invasion of the Netherlands stalled out. The Russians were forced out of the War of the Second Coalition, thanks to the brilliance of Massena, and Napoleon was on his way to securing his final victory in Egypt at Abrakir Bay. Hell, 
even the Von Day had calmed to a steady simmer. But with the French situation improving on the battlefield, the neo-Jacobin legislature feared that this momentum would lead to pro-peace crypto-royalists beginning to grow in numbers again, and thus they feared a royalist takeover. And when Napoleon finally arrived from Egypt in October of 1799, he arrived in a perfect political storm of skepticism, deceit, and opportunity. Then with both sides attempting to lure Napoleon to their camp, he arrived with all of the cards in his favor. Napoleon arrived in France to a hero's welcome. Everywhere he went, he was feted with adorning crowds, loud bands, and even plays written and performed in his honor. The throngs of citizens lining up to see him in the cities of Avignon, Valence, Lyon, and Nevers were so loud that much of the band's music was drowned out by the cheers, with spectators climbing upon one another to see the man who they believed had returned to save France. No matter the political leanings of any city or region, they all believed it would be Napoleon Bonaparte who would bring peace back to the fatherland. After all, it had been he who triumphantly ended the war of the First Coalition. It should be fitting that he would end the Second But Napoleon was keen on the fact that he was needed by both sides of the aisle, and he kept his cards extremely close to the vest. He kept them so close, in fact, that it got to a point where he would often walk in the streets in plain clothes rather than his general's uniform, so as not to arouse any suspicion or call attention to himself. Indeed, from Napoleon's arrival to France from Egypt up to Brumaire, there are few letters that exist from Napoleon. A man who would write hundreds of letters a week on average, seemed to have gone radio silent. Maybe he was afraid that his correspondences would get intercepted like they had from Egypt, but more likely, he knew that the fewer the men who knew what he was really thinking, the better. Napoleon, though, needed to settle his domestic affairs before he could settle the country's political ones. You see, it had been over a year since Napoleon had learned of Josephine's affair with Hippolyte Charles, and by now, much of his anger and emotion had subsided to at least a rational level. They would meet at the Rue de la Victoire on October 18th, in which they had what's been described as a full-blown domestic affair right there in the middle of the street, complete with shouting, weeping, pleading, and, eventually, reconciliation. Ultimately, Napoleon would forgive Josephine, the reasons for which have never really been completely understood. But we all know he loved her, yet from this moment on, she would begin to truly love him, as well as be faithful to him, even though he was not exactly the most faithful to her. It could be said, though, that many of the reasons for him remaining in the marriage were just as much political as they were for love. Now again, while we cannot be certain, getting a divorce would likely have alienated him from the Catholic conservative populace that he would eventually need to win over, and Josephine's political connections in royalist and social circles were invaluable to a man whose ambitions were as lofty as Napoleon's. In the end, they put their pasts behind them, and it would ultimately live out a relatively tranquil domestic life from here until their divorce over a decade later. And the political situation in France also afforded Napoleon an outlet of escape from the stresses of his domestic life, even if their relationship remained intact. Over the following few days, Napoleon began to meet with various dignitaries and councilmen, many of whom would end up joining him in the coup of Brumaire. Now, the Directory who by now were well aware that Napoleon was inside of Paris, needed to make a decision on whether to welcome him home or to court-martial him, as he was not technically ordered back from Egypt and did so on his own volition. 
But when they heard the cheers he received when he was spotted outside of the Tuileries, they knew that any attempt to reprimand him was political suicide. It is ironic, then, that it would be Napoleon who would help them hold the gun to their own heads. But Napoleon, as we mentioned, was still unaware of what or how he was going to act. I think he understood what he wanted to do, but in October of 1799, there were so many rumors of coups going around that Napoleon's was basically just another leaf in an endless autumn bundle. And even if he wanted to overthrow the government, it did amount to high treason. He had taken an oath to defend the Constitution in year three, and when he took an oath, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, it carried far more weight than just your spoken word. If he was going to do something drastic, he needed to be crafty, and he could not act alone. He needed someone from the inside who could provide the perfect legal and political cover that would allow for him to save face in the charge of being a traitor to France and just another man wanting to achieve absolute power by killing her democratic institutions. Which, you know, he did, but hey, we don't need to talk about that right now. Over the next few days, Napoleon would meet with many of the men who would ultimately be the critical directors, no pun intended, but, you know, kind of intended, in the coup of 18 Brumaire. And the first up on our docket, as well as Napoleon's, was good old friend Talleyrand. Now, Talleyrand had only months before been forced out as foreign minister, and he was worried that Napoleon would hold his no-show in Constantinople during the Egyptian campaign against him. But he was surprised to find out that Napoleon forgave him. Napoleon knew that Talleyrand was a brilliant statesman, and his political connections on the inside of the Council of 500 and Asians, as well as Directory itself, would be invaluable in the event that Napoleon wanted to make a move. Napoleon did, however, have one of the most important connections of the Council of 500, its soon-to-be president and Napoleon's younger brother, Lucian. Now, we've mentioned him a few times throughout the series, but now let's give a formal introduction to one of the main players in the coup of 18 Brumaire, Lucien Bonaparte. Lucien Bonaparte was born on May 21, 1775, in Ajaccio, so he was just short of six years younger than brother Napoleon. Lucien like Napoleon, was educated on mainland France, attending the military schools of Autun and Brienne, just like his brother. But following their father's death, he entered the seminary before dropping out at age 14, just in time for the start of the French Revolution. Now, Lucien, like his older brother, was also a staunch supporter of the Revolution, becoming a member of the affiliate Jacobin Club back in Corsica, where he went under the alias of Brutus Bonaparte, in obvious reference to the assassin of Julius Caesar. Now, after holding relatively minor administrative jobs during the terror, Lucien was briefly jailed during the Thermidorian reaction for his Jacobin activities, but he was released thanks to Napoleon's assistants, who then found him work in the administration for the Army of the North, working in the Austrian Netherlands, or as we all know it, Belgium. Lucien began his political rise when he was elected as a member of the Council of 500 in 1798, representing Corsica's Leomone department, which contained the capital of Ajaccio. He became a skilled orator and began to cultivate connections within the body that he became one of its leading members. By 1799, he was on the shore list of candidates to become its president, and when you know it, by 18 Brumaire, guess who was leading the lower house of the directorial government? Lucien Bonaparte is going to be a critical player over the course of the next few weeks leading up to and through 18 Brumaire, and his election as president of the Council of 500 is a critical reason why. Now, speaking of the actual coup itself, we need to circle back and talk about the man whose brainchild 18 Brumaire actually was, 
and that is, of course, the Abbe Sies. Emmanuel Joseph Sies was born on May 3, 1748, in the town of Fréjoux, on the southeastern coast of France, near the border with the then kingdom of Piedmont-Sardinia, to a family of relatively modest income. Sies had dreamed of becoming a soldier in his youth, but poor health and his family's devout Catholicism led him to pursue a religious career instead. While training for the priesthood, Sies read many of the Enlightenment-era philosophers, including Jean Locke and Jacques Turgot, and he would begin to show a disposition towards the philosophes more so than the theologians. Despite this, he would be ordained a priest in 1773 and would begin his religious career shortly thereafter in 1775, where he was appointed as a deputy to the diocese in Brittany, where he saw firsthand the immense wealth that the first and second estates held, experiences which left him disgusted at the inequality that was entrenched throughout France. It would be here that he would receive his title as abbé, by the way, French for abbot, and that's why he's usually referred to as the abbé Sies. Now, Sies also became aware of the rampant corruption throughout the church, seeing how easy it was for men who came from noble families to advance in their careers, while the average commoner would rarely leave their static position in society. Indeed, had it not have been for Sies' natural charisma, it was likely that he would have suffered the same mundane life many of his contemporaries did, but through the relationships he forged within the church, he was able to become a mildly prominent member within the French clergy. But Sies' disgust with the mistreatment of the poor and the rampant corruption of the rich left him a man with little true faith in God. Indeed, despite being an ordained Catholic priest, many historians tend to agree that Sies joined the church only to advance his career as a writer, believing it the only viable path to do so given the established social hierarchy. And it would be his writing that would garner him national fame during the opening stages of the French Revolution. After the Estates General was called, Sies wrote a pamphlet which has now gone down in history as one of the most influential pieces written during the French Revolution. What is the Third Estate? The pamphlet begins with the now famous line, quote, What is the Third Estate? Everything. What has it been hitherto in the political order? Nothing. What does it desire to be? Something. The work was wildly successful so much so that it actually allowed Sies to be elected as a final member of the Third Estate to participate in the Estates General, despite his career as a priest. He would go on to assist in publishing the final draft of the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen, and his pamphlets, many radical in nature, became wildly popular amongst the general population, and they played a key role in shaping much of the political current during the Revolution. Sies would then go on to become a member of the National Convention, representing the VAR region, and had dreamed of enshrining a French constitution with rights for all men and citizens. But with the terror, these goals were not met. Sies, despite being a priest and repulsed by the violence the terror brought about, was spared from its bloody clutches. Indeed, when asked about what he did during the terror, he later quipped that, quote, I lived. After the terror, Sies would become a prominent voice in the Directory, at first being sent as a foreign diplomat to The Hague in 1795 to help draft a treaty between France and the Batavian Republics. But it was during his time in the government with the Directory that his plans for a political takeover grew. He loathed the Constitution of Year 3, believing it too complicated, which allowed for the rise of the rampant corruption most often associated with the Directory. So he then began to send out feelers to different factions to gauge their interest in helping Sies overthrow the Directory, 
from royalists like the Archduke Charles of Austria to the more moderate generals such as Jobert. Yet while there was budding interest among many of the potential collaborators, it would be the general of our story, Napoleon Bonaparte, who would ultimately help CAs successfully complete the coup. So now that we have two of the other major players out of the way, let's go back to Napoleon. At the end of October, Napoleon began to be more vocal in his disapproval of directory, bluntly telling many of those who he dined with that he believed the directors were bringing France close to the verge of collapse. Quote, A nation is always what you have the wit to make it. The triumph of faction, parties, divisions, is the fault of those in authority only. No people are bad under a good government, just as no troops are bad under good generals. These men are bringing France down to the level of their own blundering. They are degrading her, and she is beginning to repudiate them. Less than a decade earlier, such words spoken openly almost certainly would have led to execution. But Napoleon, at this point, the only man in France that all Frenchmen truly loved, felt comfortable enough to say what he and many others were really thinking. Quote, after all, he would quip, what can generals expect from this government of lawyers? Now, by this point, the directory was beginning to sense that something foul was in the air and that Napoleon was likely at the center of it. They offered him commands in any regions he wanted, likely to save face as well as to get him as far away from Paris as possible, but he refused, citing his health. When this failed, they then took to the papers accusing him of embezzlement of captured loot while on campaign in Italy, which he fervently denied. In this climate, though, Napoleon knew that he needed to use an abundance of caution. He would meet with Talleyrand late at night to discuss their intentions, blowing out candles at any inkling of government spies nearing the residence. Talleyrand, though, as was so often the case, was the man who really connected all the dots during the plotting of Brumaire. Sies, as we mentioned, debated his options as to who he wanted to join his ranks, but none conveyed as much clout as Napoleon. Napoleon knew he would need multiple ins in the government, and who better than his brother and an actual director, Sies. Both men were skeptical of one another, obviously. Both men essentially wanted the same position, and their intentions were in lockstep. But their personal pride prevented them from meeting in person, as they wanted the other to make the first move. Almost like a couple of high schoolers who know they really like each other, but don't say anything because they want the other to ask them out first. Really childish stuff here from two of France's most prominent diplomats, but hey, no one ever accused politicians of being mature. So, enter Talleyrand who basically told Napoleon to stop being an ass, reach out to the man who is 20 years your senior, and get this plot going because together you are stronger than each alone. Napoleon decided on this call after dining with Paul Barra on October 30th. Barra, at this point, well aware that something was afoot, floated the idea that General Gabriel de Hauteville be president of France to help save the Republic. Now Napoleon, who despised de Hauteville, was taken aback by the comment. While Durville had served admirably at the Battle of Valmy, his failure against the revolting slaves in Haiti, and yes, we will be discussing the Haitian Revolution in short order, I assure you, did little to garner his respect amongst the military contemporaries of his day. In any event, Barat also suggested that Napoleon go back into the field command, and it was at this moment, at this dinner, with this man whom he had come to despise over the previous five years, that Napoleon cast his die. He walked down the halls of the Luxembourg Palace, where all the directors lived, to Sies' room and told him that he was in. The coup of 18 Brumaire was on. 
Now, the biggest obstacles to the coup succeeding were, naturally, the military and security forces in and around Paris. Some generals, like Jourdan, were stout Republicans, and any talk of a coup to install an all-but-a-name dictatorship didn't exactly sit well with him. While others, such as Napoleon's rival Bernadotte, believed that they could run France with some good old iron fisting on their own. Thus, having someone to spy on any potential detractors was critical. So enter another key player in Brumaire, Joseph Fouché. Now, Fouché was the recently appointed minister of police, and despite being a radical Jacobin during the early days of the revolution, he was more interested in gaining power than loyalty following a political party. It was for this reason he was both able to survive the terror and the Thermidorian reaction following the fall of Robespierre, as he was known to secretly protect priests and closet royalists despite his radical political identity. Well, at least in theory. Napoleon was impressed by Fouché's credentials, quipping once that even he likely would have been spied upon by the man. Quote, We cannot create such men, Napoleon would later say. We must take as we find. Fouché was cunning in his use of spies, recruiting butchers, bakers, peddlers, locksmiths, pub owners, lawyers, and many other unassuming professions to create a vast surveillance network that would impress even future Stasi agents. So impressed was Napoleon by Fouché's talent that he would keep him on as minister of police for the next 11 years under his rule. Quote, Fouché and Fouché alone is able to conduct the minister of police. On November 1st, Napoleon Fouché Talleyrand and C.S. all met at Lucien's house to begin coordinating the details. The following few days saw Napoleon attend various dinners and banquets on behalf of both houses of the legislature, but Napoleon said little other than to call for unity amongst the French public. He ate even less, dining only on small morsels for fear of being poisoned by some of his political adversaries. Though, it is also likely that the nerves of such a momentous event were beginning to settle in, because the plans were outlined as follows. On day one, which was originally scheduled to be taking place on Thursday, November 7th, or 16 Brumaire, Napoleon was to attend a special session of the Council of Vendors at the Tuileries, where he would inform them that the Republic was in danger of various British-backed plots and neo-Jacobin threats. As a result, he would propose that both chambers meet in a different location for their safety at the small Bourbon Palace of Saint-Cloud, just west of Paris. From here, because of the existential quote-unquote threats posed to the Republic, the elders would appoint Napoleon as commander of all the troops in Paris and then have all the directors resign. The plan stated that Sies and Roger Ducot, by now also aware of the coup and in full collaboration, would resign, and this would force Barra, Goyer, and Moulin to do the same. With the ensuing power vacuum, day two would commence with Napoleon arriving with troops to Saint-Cloud and... Uh, persuade the legislature that due to the looming national emergency, the constitution of year three should be repealed and replaced with a new one, creating a three-man triumvirate who would essentially dictate the terms of the new constitution. This triumvirate, called the consulate in direct reference to the days of the Roman Republic, would see C.A.'s, Napoleon, and Ducot as the three triumvirs, with C.S. as the first consul, though Napoleon plotting a coup within the coup had other ideas, as we will see shortly. Now, Sies believed that he had all the leverage, not only with Napoleon, but also with the legislative bodies. Because, you see, even if the 500 balked at the thought of abolishing the Constitution, he would use Lucien, as its president, to dissolve the body and basically eliminate it. Sies had also been paying off numerous elders handsomely to gain their support in voting for the measures, basically bringing them in on the coup under the table. 
But as the day approached, many of them began to get cold feet, believing that they would be found out and then purged. As a result, the coup needed to be delayed two days in order to buy more time for these imbeciles, as Napoleon referred to them. Thus, the new day one became Saturday, November 9th, 1799, or as we know it, 18 Brumaire, year 8. On a cold, dreary morning on November 9th, Napoleon stood in front of an assembled officer corps of the 17th District. Explaining to them the dire situation of the Republic, Napoleon asked for a personal oath of loyalty, knowing that he would likely need their soldiers in the coming hours. He masterfully crafted his speech in a way that he was preserving the Republic from forces that were trying to tear it apart. Little did they know that the man they stood in front of was the source of that very force. Nassier's, meanwhile, met with a special session of the Council of Elders to discuss the special motions that they were to vote on, including making Napoleon commander of the Parisian troops, as well as moving the meeting to Saint-Cloud due to the suspected Neo-Jacobin plot to overthrow the government. In a savvy move, because of the early morning hours, many of the oblivious members of the Council of Elders did not show up, except for those who were paid off and a few others who were so frightened of the purported threat that they passed them without much thought. With the decrees approved, Napoleon changed from civilian clothes to his general's coat, gathered his men, and rode to the Tuileries. Arriving at 10 a.m., Napoleon was well received by the elders, giving a small speech to butter them up before sacking them from power. Quote, you are the wisdom of the nation. It's up to you to indicate the measures in these circumstances that can save our country. I come here, surrounded by all the generals, to promise you all their support. I name General Lefebvre as my lieutenant. I will faithfully carry out the missions you have entrusted to me. No attempt should be made to look in the past for examples of what is happening. Nothing in history resembles the end of the 18th century. The Council of Ancients applauded Napoleon's speech, after which Lucien ordered the chambers to saint Cloud. With the conspirators now knowing that the entire government would be secluded in a Parisian suburb, they could now launch their main assault on day two. And that brings us to 19 Brumaire. And it's interesting that this momentous event in French and indeed world history is named after the first day of the coup, while many of its most famous moments happened on day two or 19 Brumaire. But hey, I don't write the history books, just these podcast scripts. So let's just go with it. Napoleon was awake by 4 a.m. on 19 Brumaire, gathering his men and riding to saint Cloud. General Jean Moreau, meanwhile, went to the Luxembourg Palace in Paris, where he subverted the palace guards and placed the directors Barat, Goyer, and Moulin under arrest, demanding their resignations. Now, Barat at first resisted. He was aware of Napoleon's intentions, but had assumed that he would be part of the coup rather than one of its victims. Instead, he was ultimately convinced by Talleyrand, who else, to accept the resignation in return for being able to keep his large estate, as well as a substantial pension from any of the subsequent governments for his service to the revolution. Goyer and Moulin also protested, but they would ultimately accept their fates the following day. In less than 48 hours, the directors of the directory ceased directing. By day two, many members of both councils began to realize that they were not in saint Cloud to be protected from a neo-Jacobin takeover, but rather to be subjected to a wider coup. When Napoleon arrived, he stormed into the chambers with his grenadiers. While likely unplanned, this turned out to be Napoleon's coup within the coup. He was done dealing with lawyers and politicians, believing that they had wasted too much time as it was. 
Now, despite the fact he received a relatively warm reception by the Council of Nations at first, when Napoleon began to preach about the end of the revolution and how the republic had no government, their attitude became more hostile. Quote, and the Constitution, one elder asked. The Constitution, you yourselves have destroyed it, Napoleon replied. You violated it on 18 Fructidor. You violated it on 22 Florial. You violated it on 30 Prairial. It no longer has the respect of anyone. Now, this, of course, was in reference to the prior coups during the directorial period, all of whom we've touched on briefly in this series. But it was when he moved on to the lower house, the Council of 500, that Napoleon nearly lost everything. Much larger and with far more leftists than the more centrist upper house, when Napoleon arrived, members of the house catcalled him and his men, admonishing them for showing up to a democratic chamber with soldiers under arms. They shouted at the hypocrisy of Napoleon and his supporters pledging allegiance to the Constitution of Year 3, while at the same time marching on the legislature with rifles and cavalry. Down with the tyrant, some shouted. Tyrant, Cromwell, down with the dictator, shouted others. Now, Lucian tried to bang his presidential gavel to quell the chaos, but by now there was so much commotion, it was impossible to hear. Many of the members then began descending onto the main floor and began pushing, shoving, and pulling on Napoleon and his grenadiers, with some of them needing to step in between to prevent a full-blown riot. Napoleon, it was reported, turned white as a ghost and nearly fainted, completely underestimating the response he expected to receive by the Council of 500. Now, eventually, he was shuffled out of the chamber and onto the courtyard, where he then sent an order for his brother, Lucian, to come out and assist him. Many members of the 500 tried to physically restrain Lucian in his president's chair to continue the motion to outlaw Napoleon, desperately trying to make the session seem lawful, but the grenadiers would eventually succeed in getting him out of the chamber as well. Now, Sieyes, who by now had cash and carriages at the ready in case things got too far gone, implored the chamber to keep a level head, arguing that anyone who declared France's savior an outlaw was by definition an outlaw. Now, while they all waited for Lucian to emerge from the chamber, they began developing a contingency plan. It was clear to most that Napoleon had botched the second day of the coup, yes. In fact, he would later remark that he much preferred dealing with soldiers than with lawyers, and it was clear to most that he was unprepared to use words to help alleviate the situation. But while he was shaken, his confidence was not. He was determined to finish the job in the coming hour, and that's exactly what would happen. The conspirators decided that convincing the Legislative Guard Corps that they were the ones saving the Republic would be the best option. Lucien, in one of the coup's most famous scenes, rode out to the Guard Corps protecting the proceedings and ranted about how the Council of 500 was being held hostage by a couple of fanatics. It was the truth, of course, but just not the fanatics that the guards were thinking of. Lucien then brandished a sword and pointed it directly at Napoleon's chest, declaring, quote, I swear that I will stab my own brother to the heart if he even attempts anything against the liberty of Frenchmen. And it was pure theater, of course, but it worked. Napoleon then met with the guard's captain, Jean-Marie Ponsard, and told him, Captain, take your company and go right away to disperse this assembly of sedition. There are not representatives of the nation anymore, but some scoundrels who caused all of its misfortunes. When Ponsard asked what to do should there be resistance, Napoleon replied directly, use force. Accompanied by officers Bessaret, Leclerc, and Murat leading the cavalry, the guards stormed into the chamber, denouncing the lawyers who had ruined France. Despite the deputies crying out, Vive la République, 
they would be drowned out by the strong arms of the guardsmen. While many of the deputies implored the soldiers to disobey their officers, they did nothing of the sort. Then less than an hour, the chamber was emptied, and many of the deputies began their escape into historical obscurity. After four years and eight days, the French directory ceased to exist. The coup of 18 Brumaire, for all of its mishaps, was a bloodless and overwhelming success. Later that evening, Lucien assembled about 50 men loyal to the conspirators from the legislature that agreed to suspend the directory for three months while naming a three-man consulate of Sies, Bonaparte, and Ducot as its triumvirs, and a new constitution was to be implemented. While it was assumed that Sies had already drafted such a document and that he would be named first consul, Napoleon would have other ideas. And as we'll see in the next episode, it would go through a myriad of loopholes and rigged elections, but it would see Napoleon secure his grip on power for the next 15 years. The coup of 18 Brumaire brought the French Revolution full circle. What started as an enlightened movement to replace an absolute monarchy ended with a bloodless coup that led to the establishment of an absolute dictatorship. The craziest part, it was not only tolerated, but generally accepted by the French public. After years of revolution, coups, counter-coups, wars, and corruption, the French were tired. They now only wanted to be led by a stable, just government, and would accept any alternative that could meet those needs. And while they were not certain how long this newly established consulate would last, hell, in their minds it likely would have lasted until December, they were at least sure of the fact that they would not have to deal with the stale taste in their mouths of the directory any longer. But there was still uncertainty. Could the consulate run a competent government? Could they run a war? Could they, gasp, make France a country worth living in again? The answer? Well, we'll dive into the more next episode, but as it turns out, the answer to all was a resounding yes. Yes.